All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us again on the Vitalist Spark podcast. It's been a bit since we've had an episode, so thank you for bearing with us. Today, we have Chris Casillas, who's with Regenerating Sonora, and uh, he was previously an incubator project, and he's been working in the Superior region for a few years, ever since coming back. So he has some really cool stuff to tell us and share with us. So Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? who you are, and just tell us where where your family began. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, Sergio. Christopher Casillas, I'm a fifth-generation community member of Superior, Arizona, population 3,000. We're situated at the threshold of the Copper Corridor, which is a collection of about 12 communities, most of which are situated along the Gila River. I can tell you like some history of the place, specifically Superior. Uh, to, To go there, we'd start about half a billion years ago. (laughs) That's the when there was a bunch of volcanic activity and subduction that was occurring. And all that activity resulted in the beautiful mountains that we have here today. And the transformational concentration actually led to this formation of obsidian, of gold, of silver, and of course, copper. So uh, this land has been tended by many indigenous people throughout time the Holcomb, the Otam, the Salado, the Apache. They were all supported by the Queen Creek here, which at one time used to drain into the Gila River. And uh, the Queen Creek is now known as the Arizona's Forgotten River. So there's a story there for another time. But the population with the indigenous people actually had all these contractions and expansions because of drought, floods, famine, there's a kind of boom and bust that was occurring even in the population at the time. So most people know that colonizers came, drove out the Apache and started doing some mining prospecting. In that prospecting, they found silver and eventually found a ton of copper. And that resulted in a big influx of workers coming from Mexico. And that's how both my mother's family and my father's family came here over a hundred years ago was for that reason. That's great, man. See, you have roots, like truly buried roots, right? That's not something too common that you hear here in Arizona. What about the Copper Corridor? I know your focus is superior, but for those who might be sitting in Yuma or Lake Havasu and they've heard the term, the Copper Corridor, what happens in the Copper Corridor? What's been the, the history of extraction, if you will? A lot of these towns throughout the Copper Corridor share a similar story. So if you were in Superior, which like I said, is a threshold to the corridor, you would drive through this beautiful corridor that was carved out by the Queen Creek, which I'll call the Queen Creek River because it re- really is a river, even though it's called a creek. Creeks rarely carve out a corridor through the mountains like this has. So a beautiful drive with tons of rock climbing. Of course, you pass through the widely contested Oak Flat campground area, which has been sacred to the Apache and others for some time, the site of the In Limbo mining operation by Rio Tinto. And that story of extraction does occur in all throughout the Copper Corridor and other communities. If you were to follow the Queen Creek up, eventually you'd get to a junction and you'd see that if you kept going, you'd go to places like Miami and Globe. And then if you um, head more east, you get to places like uh, Kearney 
Winkleman or Viper, all the way down to Salmon Well and Oracle. And if you were to look on a map, you'd see just how interesting it is that these communities are really established along the Gila River. And it makes sense, right? Because you know, that's what supports life. Water supports life. And so many of these towns are economically depressed because of past mining activity that has stopped. That's been the case in a lot of other towns. Just to give you an idea, so 80% of the working male population in Superior were employed by the mine. And so that means like my great-great-grandfather, all of my grandfathers, they all work for the mine, either underground or in the smelter. So you can imagine the kind of disruption that occurred when the copper price dropped and these mines shut down. So like my Tata, he's a World War II veteran. He's still with us. He's 97 years old. And he's a, such a treasure trove of, of history. And so you learn how like before Superior back in 1919, our family went to Ray Sonora and started there. And it, it some people talk about it as a, a town that once was because that's the kind of impact that the closure of these mining operations had on, on places. In some cases, they ceased to exist. It was certainly hard for uh, for Superior and other places. Most communities, I can't speak too broadly for the Copper Corridor because I deeply know my own place and you know, I've heard stories from others about these similar patterns that occur, but so many people had to work together in order to get through these hard times. They had to band together, support each other, and that's how they were able to continue to move forward. Like for me, I was born in 1987. The, the mine here shut down in the early 80s. So the population went from 8,000 to what, around what it is today, around 2,000, 3,000 people. And I heard all these stories of how great things used to be. Oh my gosh, there used to be 17 bars here and people were so always going out downtown that you hear all these stories of a vibrant main street and when i was a youngster walking down the street it was all boarded up and in some cases it's still that way for other towns in the copper corridor we've been fortunate to to be on the boom side of that boom and bust cycle and so things are really changing and superior and we'd like to see that 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 carries forward through other Copper Corridor communities as well. And I just remember the one time that I was before I, I moved back, my dad called me up and he goes, Chris, there's cars on Main Street and it's Friday. So the, the that economic impact has certainly left its mark and we're looking to change the narrative by diversifying our economy and to continue to use the strengths that we have, which is that, that strong tight community bond that supports each other. Thanks, Chris. See, like when you're talking about just in terms of population, that 8,000, I think it's happened in all of those places, right? You just drive through Superior to Miami to Globe and you see there's a lot of downtowns that you can tell that there was something there a long time ago and it's just been, been left as population has decreased. But in Superior, the opportunities that you spoke of in terms of development, what are you guys? What are you guys seeing? What are you working on? Yeah, worth noting because when you have this boom and bust, you have all these literally op open and empty buildings. That means that there's all this opportunity for more people to to 
take up the space that was left behind. And in many cases, the spaces are much more affordable. So in 2019, we bought the old Leo's grocery store, which has significant community cultural value because of the way that the shop owner who owned that store and others would run everything off credit. So you'd show up and I remember being a little guy, I used to help my Tata deliver milk after he lost his pinky in the mine, he became a milkman. So I'd follow him around when I was a little guy and we'd go to all the stores and deliver milk. I was too young to be there with him when he was doing it door to door and going into people's houses. But we'd go into Leo's and Raimundo would be there. And uh, he knew me because I just could walk to his store. And every time I'd go in, he'd point to a candy bar and he'd say, put it on Tata's bill. I'm like, oh yeah, good idea. And so I'd grab the candy bar and I'd just walk out the door. And uh, it was that kind of close-knit, trust-based community connection, which was just how things ran. Um, and so buying that building really meant a lot to all of us to see that we could first keep the name Leo's because it has so much meaning in those people who have been here for some time, then to turn it into a community center. And that's what we're doing now. So we have a community center at Leo's. This is just one of the many projects that we have going on. But I think it illustrates a point that because you have this economic depressed environment, it means that there's more affordability. And of course, that's changing all the time. We now have a challenge of gentrification, just like many other places. But still, relatively speaking, the affordability is a major component to the kind of creativity that it enables. If this building was priced at the prices in the valley, there, there's no way that we could have gotten our hands on it. There's just, it just wouldn't have happened. And I'll just tell you a little story that we incubated a, uh, a local artist who wanted to start a, a community project doing art. And we were at a 12 foot by 12 foot space in the corner of Leo's where she was able to run experiments and find out what she wanted to offer to the community and what things ended up being interesting to people here in town. And it was through that experimentation and and that kind of work in that little space that she was able to have the confidence to open up a shop on Main Street. And Maya Bart in that Art 145, if she was in down Phoenix, probably would not afford or be comfortable trying to do that in a place like that with those kinds of prices. There, there's just so much opportunity that we have for creative expression and for citizens to do projects that they find meaningful because of the affordability. I just think about what's happening over in Miami with Miami Arts Commission. And what they're doing is just so incredible. You can see how they have an art studio, they have a housing project, they're working on a maker space and a a soda fountain, they're going to open up a bar soon. And it's like, how is that possible? It's possible because of the affordability. So yes, there are all the challenges that come with being in an economically depressed community. There's certainly opportunities there too. All right. Thank you for all that context. And it was really cool to see. I really, I wish I would have gone to the soda shop when I was down in Miami. At least it's only an hour away, give or take. Now, talk to us about Regenerating Sonora. Where did you get the idea to start the organization? You've already mentioned a little bit what the projects that you're working on and where this interest in helping Superior has come from the philanthropic community, because it's not just Vitalist 
saw this, right? It was, you know, I think Nick De La Fuente really just sort of helped drive this with you guys. You know, he really got behind this and he saw the potential. And I think you guys have worked well to, to sort of bring in not only philanthropic interest, but other, you know, development interests into the region. So how did Regenerating Sonora come about? Sure. Yeah. Th- thanks for asking. Really would have to start the story when I left Superior. So, you know, it, the, it is many people end up having to leave this town to either continue to raise their families in other conditions, especially in the late 80s and 90s. But even today, it's you still see not too many families, but more coming because of what's changed. But at the time, you know, we ended up leaving. I started a career in tech at the age of 19. I was the youngest at the company and go, going up the ladder that way. And I blinked my eyes and it's 12 later and I've helped a small startup turn into a billion dollar publicly traded company. I'm the director of business development. I've had the opportunity to travel to, at that time, just under 40 countries. And so had li- lived a, a real full life at a young age. And you know how Maslow's hierarchy of needs works. It's like you've checked all these boxes, then there's a self-actualization question that shows up. And for me, that would turn out to be that's part my role of self-actualization would be systems actualization, but that's kind of skipping ahead a bit. When I was enjoying this good career and this nice, comfortable life, it was around this time that my now wife, Amanda, and I started talking about our future together and having kids. And that conversation was really sobering for me because I had to stop, take a pause and look at how things are in the world today. You know, we have this... Uh, dysfunction, we have ecological destruction, we have all kinds of challenges that we're facing today. And I just thought to myself, well, what am I doing about this? Like, what's my role in this? And like, if I have kids and they look at me in the eyes and say, hey, we have all these problems, what are you doing about it? Now, I, need, I needed to know that, uh, that I could look at them back in the eyes and have a good answer for them. And it just felt like for me, I had a kind of moral obligation and a duty and also an honor to to respond in some meaningful way, especially given the advantage that I had of, of knowing that I had a little bit of runway to not worry about money. And uh, that meant that I could quit my job and explore these questions like, how did we get to being where we're at today? And what's an appropriate response and what's a role that I can play? And so that really kicked things off for me. Th- these questions ended up resulting in a kind of quest. And so left my job, started asking why, and that led to some ways of addressing these issues that we have. And for me, I saw that so much can be done and a high leverage point is in the neighborhood or in the community container that you know so much happens in the household, but can't really affect the household too much. But you certainly can have an impact on the system that household is nested in, which is in the community. And it makes sense that I would come back to Superior to do this work. There was a strong spiritual calling that I usually keep private, but I can say that like some of the background is like my nana and my tata, they initiated me into being a community helper at a very young age. I used to go with them to do food distribution and experiences like that really get into your DNA. They got into like my bones and it became something that really stuck with me. So Having the examples of my Nana and my Tata and also like this compassion for the fact that I knew that 
I had a, a nice life up to this point, but so much of it wasn't because of my own doing. It's because I had these amazing nanas and tatas and tios. I had all this huge tribe of family members that were there to support me. And I know that, you know, especially when you think about that concept of ACEs and the trauma-informed approach, that having a buffering adult makes so much of a difference. Well, I have a bunch of buffering adults. And there, there was a strong feeling on my end of like, well, what about all these people who didn't get the blessing that I did? You know, who, but the people who weren't as fortunate. So that was part of the call as well to do something about that and to see that um, whatever scenario that my kids in the future at the time, now I have a, uh, almost two month old Francisco and he's here in Superior making the sixth generation here in our family. But I, I had to ask, like, what kind of environment do I want him to, or, well, the, in, at the time, theoretical children to grow up in and and what could I do about it? So yeah, Regenerating Sonora was a response to some of the answers I got from asking those why questions and understanding as vitalist sees clearly that we have to look at systemic approaches. And so it's the neighborhood system that we really wanted to focus on. So the, a group of already engaged community activists here in town, and we formed Regenerating Sonora and that was in 2019. We bought Leos, like I mentioned before, and the initial impulse was let's do a community hub. We'll have a community center, and it's from this that all these other programs that we could do will emerge. And of course, COVID hit and you know, forced everyone to have to pivot in some ways. And for us, we turned the community center from a gathering space into a food distribution space. And that was how we really began was schools were out and they were all remote and that meant all the free food that the parents depended on to feed their kids that they got from the schools was off the table so we needed to do something about that and that was about two years that we did that program and over 10,000 meals we were able to distribute throughout our community and we saw that really wasn't a sustainable practice what we were doing thank goodness we had United Way Food Bank, and they supported us a lot with giving us food, but that was being shipped from Phoenix over to Superior, put it in refrigerators. And it was just like, it was what we needed to do at the time. It was like a holding action, but it really wasn't a systemic shift. And so that drew a strong impetus for us to look at local food systems as the next step that we were going to take. And so, um, there was a man named Carl Erickson here in town and he passed away in a tragic accident. And he had told his estate that he wanted this plot of land that he had. It was like a burned down building. That was just an empty uh, lot. He wanted it to go to some kind of community good. And so they found about what we were doing in Superior with Regenerated Sonora. And they said, Hey, well, why don't you guys take this lot? And so it, without that opportunity, I'm not sure how we would have gotten our start on the food systems approach, but that was a huge boon for us. And you know, we're very grateful for Carl Erickson's vision to see that lot would go to something good. And it did. We began doing our community garden there. And that has since expanded. And then in 2022, after the COVID scare started to lift and things became more safe to gather, we reactivated the community building and Leo started to host people again. I can get into more detail about where we went from there. But I'll, I'll pause here. I'm a little curious as to the whole local food system portion of it. I've seen the Lair Gardens that you guys have 
Good. Is that what you're still focusing on or what are you, what are you focusing on now in terms of food systems and what kind of support to the community are you guys providing through that? Yeah, good question. So we are still doing the Lear Gardens. And for people who aren't familiar, they are the Lear is an acronym that stands for Linking Ecosystem and Hardware for Regeneration. The idea is it's like re it's like regenerative agriculture in a box. It's pretty amazing what is possible with a little bit of lumber and some ingenuity and a pond liner. It's good to have a pond liner too. So I could get into the details of that, but in short, I'll say that these Lear Gardens have enabled people like us who didn't know too much about growing food to be able to have bountiful harvests. It lowers the barrier of entry for people who don't know much about growing to grow lots of food without a lot of water in these harsh desert climates. This is important for us at the raised beds because, as I mentioned before, the history of mining and extraction in our town. We have a lot of lead, a lot of arsenic that's in the ground. And so there's a lot of concerns about you know, growing food in the ground here and the uptake of those heavy metals that would then get into our food. So the raised beds serve a number of purposes. So yeah, we started off with building one bed. We got a few donated to us by Ed Williams, who's the inventor of this through his business called Lear Innovations. And then we've expanded from there. So we were able to get a the neighboring lot next to ours through a woman named Lynn Umphreys. Her husband passed and kind of similar to the story of Carl Erickson, where Tom Hall was his name and he wanted to leave a positive mark you know, in, in his absence. And so he had some money set aside to go towards some kind of good. And both Tom and Lynn had spent a lot of time in Superior and loved the place and had a passion for supporting the community. And it was through Lynn's efforts to mobilize those funds and some matching funds that we were able to expand the lot. And so now we have more significantly more growing space where we're going to be putting a lot more Lear Gardens on there. But part of it is a demonstration site for us to show what's possible, for us to start to experiment with the various ways that we can get food into people's hands, be that donating some, working with our local food bank on a small scale, giving some and selling some to local restaurants, and then our farmer's market as well. But what we'd like to do next year is since we've tested it out and we've been able to prove for ourselves that this is an effective way of growing in our environment, in our context, we'll start getting these Lear Gardens in people's backyards all around Superior. And and eventually we'd like to all around the Copper Corridor. So we have one that we donated to a group in Salmon Well, the Salmon Well Revitalization Coalition, and through their project specifically called AgriHood. And we're looking to get some Lear Gardens in other places throughout the Copper Corridor eventually. But next year, the primary focus is going to be on getting them into beds around town. That's awesome. Thanks for expanding on that a little bit. What other projects are you working on? It seems like you're sort of teasing us a little bit with something else that you're really excited about. So that's true. I'm going to let you go there. Nice. Thanks. Okay. So the local food systems, in, in brief, we're looking to grow our local capabilities by distributing those capabilities. So how we do that is, you know, we have the demonstration site, we get these eventually in people's backyards all around, and then we're growing food and we're also growing healthy soil. And there's a whole aside on why the soil matters. We actually are generating 
healthy soil as an output. And that that becomes critical for a number of reasons. But I will move on just to, to keep things rolling because, you know, we're taking a place-based approach here. And so that means we're not focused on a single issue. We're looking at our place as a whole and we're seeing what kind of systemic interventions we could make. So back to the community center, you know, we started reactive again by doing movie nights and just letting people know that we're getting things going again. We have the the practice of crawl, walk, run, and that really helps. We got that from the Navy SEALs. So yeah, crawl, walk, run. So we start by just having some movie nights. Those are easy to organize. It's easy for people to understand when they're happening and what's going on there. And then we started to expand from there based on uh, what kind of potential we saw. I mean, the mission for Regenerating Sonora is nurturing potential for a resilient and regenerative future. And so that means we're always looking at what the potential of our place is. And we started to see a number of things that cropped up. One is that when talking with people who were coming to these events, it's always good to buy extra food. So that way the people who show up, you can give them the food and they don't feel guilty about taking the food because you say, hey, look, you got all this extra. We just take this home. And then you find what's really going on in their homes and in, in their own context. So we found out really clearly from people like I remember one guy, Mike, his he I haven't seen him in some time, but he was living in the creek for a while. He was homeless. And, you know, I remember asking him, hey man, like what would make things like what would be the difference maker for you? He says, hope. I say, okay, I mean, I hear you. I can't like put hope in a bottle and give it to you. So like what else, what would be best? And he said, meaningful work. That really struck me. Meaningful work or just some paid work. You know, that's really what he wanted. That gives him dignity. That gives him some spending money. And it was, we didn't hear that just from Mike. We heard that from many people who were showing up and that we were talking to when they were just passing by on the streets. And so we, we heard that and we said, okay, we need to see what we can do about meaningful work. So what else is going on as we are doing these events is youth started to show up and we found out that some of them had an interest in technology. And so we said, okay, well, we'll start. And it happened really naturally, but we started a youth tech club. And that's been going strong since December of last year. And oh my goodness, I can't, I could spend the rest of our time just talking about how impressed I am by by the youth who've shown up and what they've been able to do. They've really embraced what we're doing here. And now it's us all doing it together. So They've taken ownership of the community center. You know, they help to organize and beautify it. They support some of the efforts that we're doing around social support. So they help to manage the free clothing rack that we have outside. They help to manage the free food stand that we have. And the, by the way, those are methods that we learned from another community center out in Michigan who is called the Fledge. And they're doing some really interesting things. And what we found is that trying to copy people's stuff doesn't really work. But if you start with just focusing on the method, so like, what are the methods? Those methods can be transferable because so much is contextually dependent. So trying to copy paste what someone's doing doesn't really work, but a method, you can actually transfer that from one place to another and then just make your own adjustments as you've needed, like we've done. Like small things, like we found out that people take a lot of the hangers. So, okay, maybe people need hangers, but also we need hangers to keep this going. So one of the tech kids knows how to solder and he soldered the hangers onto the clothing rack. So it's just interesting to see how people's skills 
are expressed in various ways. So that's the tech club. And right now they're working on a wearable computer. We just helped them get a Raspberry Pi so they can hook it all up. And also the one project that is in the works is getting our community center to use voice activation, not with Alexa, but with their own sort of homegrown open source solution. And so they've been holding these alternatives to school dances where instead of prom, they held their own dance at Leo's and the homecoming is coming up and they're going to a day before hold a dance here. And one of the ambitions is because we got all this disco equipment donated to us. Thank you for giving us the disco equipment. We want to be able to say disco mode on and then you know all the disco equipment flicks on. And so they're working on that right now. Just as some examples of things that they're doing, what we see and that they're really passionate about is being thoughtful about the approaches that they're taking and then communicating those outwards so that way other kids in other places or even other community organizers can learn what they're learning and then they can apply what is applicable for them. So that's a big part of the work that we're doing here is, you know, hearing these small anecdotes and what's behind it is the theory informed practice or these ways that we can take ideas apply them in our context, and then share them back. It's almost like we're like a little laboratory here, and we experiment with things, and then we share our findings out for other people to try themselves or to learn from for their own purposes. That's awesome. I can't wait to see. What are you guys going to call this thing? If it's not Alexa, is it going to be like some awesome... Like oh, yeah. So it, it, so you're asking the right question here. It's Spark, and Spark yeah. is this like bootleg little robot made out of like washers and some other like repurposed i don't even know where these materials came from but it's like a it's our little robot mascot for tech club and so spark is going to be the uh, the operator so we'll say spark disco mode on turn on the lights yeah we're on the vitalist spark podcast so (laughs) i can't wait to share that with them yeah that's a good point oh that's awesome You've told us a lot about what you guys are working on, what you're doing in the community. Next week's a big deal for the Superior community. The Prickly Pear Festival, which some of our listeners may have heard of or might have in passing heard of it. You and other leaders in Superior are going to be featured on Arizona's Family. So tell us what the hype is with the Prickly Pear Festival and what it's like. You know, if we can get people out there. So we're talking about the 12th annual Prickly Pear Festival here in Superior. So this has been going on for quite some time. And it's really a way to highlight the potential that the desert has for sustainability. And that features mainly the edible desert. Of course, there's the other aspects there too, but people really like to know and, and experience for themselves the tastes of the desert that are possible. I just learned this earlier this year. <clears throat> that in a palo verde, the little pods that, that are there, it's like they're edamame. You can eat them and they're really good. So when the seeds right and you see them and they're still bright green, pick them off and eat one. And But you learn all kinds of things when you go to the Prickly Pear Festival. And I've that's heard just of like, but hey, you know, Palo Verdes, those, you know, prickly, lovely trees that I have in my backyard. <laughs> well, that, yeah, right. There's something more that you can appreciate them for than being prickly is that they do have a delicious feature to them. So yeah, when you go there, you get to to learn about what's possible with foraging. And also there's guest speakers that show up that you can learn from. We'll be speaking at that event at 2 p.m., I believe it is, 
Miracle Martinez, who is a board member of Regenerating Sonora, myself, and a friend of ours named Elliot, who is traveling from Canada to to come to the Prickly Pear Festival. And so that's going to be pretty exciting. But I don't know if it's because he really wants prickly margaritas or if it's because he wants prickly pear ice cream. I, it's not for me to say. It's for him to say. But yeah, you should definitely come check it out. It's um, surprising to know what kind of potential there is with sustainability when it comes to the desert. So that's the Prickly Pear Festival. It's August 26th on a Saturday. It's an all-day event. And, and for some, it's an all-evening event, too. And, you know, part of what happens at the Prickly Pear Festival is, yes, it highlights the sustainable potential of the desert, but it also is a really big support to the businesses here in town and to the vendors that show up. And so now I'll use that as a way to kind of bring us back to supporting local entrepreneurs, because that's so important. You know, there's a story I heard that is a little heartbreaking where there's a local entrepreneur in town and he supports, but part of what he's trying to do is, yes, he wants to make some money, but a big part of it is to provide employment opportunities for locals here, especially those who have some tangible skills. So he has a work crew that he manages and things got slow after a government contract ended. And when things get slow, that means the people working have less to do and they have less to do. They are making less money. And there's one anecdote where Someone there on the team who really skilled, a good guy, but has a lot of pressure to pay his bills for not just him, but for those that depend on him. And what did he end up doing? He, when things got slow there, he ended up selling some pills and he starts selling some pills in the neighborhood. And then he gets busted for selling those pills. And now he's in jail. And it's just, this is the reality. You know, there, there's a lot to be inspired by and there's a lot of good things, but we also have to to take the sobering look at what happens when when economies slow down and when people are economically distressed and financially insecure. So that's just a, an anecdote to show you why it's so important to support local entrepreneurs. They provide local opportunity. Well, they provide opportunities for locals to to get paid and to do meaningful work. Back to Mike, who is there living in the Queen Creek, you know, he's looking for work and that has systemic effects, not just for him, but for all the others that are being employed. So local employment is such a big deal. That's why we started another initiative to provide technical assistance to local entrepreneurs. And so because we have a good network, we've been able to bring in some amazing human beings that want to help and are passionate because they understand how important it is to support local entrepreneurs. We've done a lot around applying these sort of big brain Harvard models of organizational management that we can distill down into a conversation over coffee and that provides additional organizational effectiveness for them. And it's been making waves enough that it's possible to do this with locals taking the, the, these high powered business models and applying them in a simple way that uh, we've been talked about in conferences overseas and in other places. And so it's nice to see that that's being recognized as something that's useful. And we are just so passionate about supporting our local entrepreneurs. And the Prickly Pear Fest is certainly a way to do that. And, you know, our initiative to to provide technical assistance to our businesses here is also is also really critical. I'll just point back to something I heard the late Michael 23. If If you all don't know, he was an amazing human being that 
was there in Miami doing some significant work. And I'll never forget when we were seeing everything that was going on and we're talking about what we were doing. A friend of mine said, who would have thought that this whole transformation would be taking place in rural Arizona? And he just responds and says, we did. And and it's true. I mean, it really is happening here. And you know, one of their goals is to mint 100 new businesses in their local area. It's a pretty big goal and understand why they have it because it does have such a big impact and it does make a big difference for folks. So yeah, that's local entrepreneurship. I do have one other thing I can talk about as far as programs that uh, that we're doing, if we have a little bit of time. Yeah, go ahead. So I mentioned gentrification, right? And like issue that we have here. So land use and housing is something that we're taking, we're just being very thoughtful and methodical on. This issue is something that has plagued so many communities across the nation and internationally too, where you have community workers and activists like us who are doing good stuff and that inherently has value that raises the value of the place that raises the value of the homes. And then, oh, look what we've just done. We've gentrified ourselves out of our own home. So, you know, we've seen this enough to say that we want off that merry-go-round. So uh, we're looking at uh, various ways that we can approach this and you know, we're looking at uh, community land trusts as a potential vehicle to do that. And uh, we want to make it easier for others to to start community land trusts if that ends up being something that, uh, if that ends up being a path that we go down. Because right now it's like, we can talk to plenty of people who say they know someone who knows about community land or who does community land trusts or someone who knows about community land trusts, but to talk to someone who can actually help to facilitate the process, it's not so clear. So this is just a call out if like, you know, some resources, listeners out there, we'd love to highlight those and specifically people who can support the process of forming one. Or evaluating other types of legal instruments that can be used to take land out of the speculative market and uh, and stabilize house prices. So that's something that we're looking into. And then finally, I'll say, oh gosh, there's I'm just thinking about all these other exciting things. So I don't know if I can say finally just yet. Also, our town manager, Todd Pryor, he has this really exciting vision, and it is to revitalize the Queen Creek watershed. And, you know, the town of Superior is nested in this larger watershed. And when we talk about revitalizing the watershed, that means recharging the aquifer. That means getting the creek flowing again. That means increasing biodiversity and supporting all life here in this watershed. And so there's a plan right now to, we're working with the U of A, and also there's the Bureau of Reclamation has a grant out to do an extensive watershed management plan. And so so we're playing a support role in that, getting the word out to the community and helping to guide this process along. So that way we have a comprehensive watershed management plan that's going to support us now into the future, because we all know water is a huge issue just in our town throughout the corridor and in, in most cases throughout Arizona at large. And so this is something that will become more of a critical issue as time goes on. We're also doing some collaborations with other community activists and organizers throughout the corridor, mainly with our neighbors. So Miami, Globe, Kearney, and we're starting to see how we can work together to pull in more resources to the corridor and then provide the right kind of coordination necessary to get the most out of investments that can occur. I just learned this the other day that 
one way to define a catalyst is that a catalyst takes independent processes, connects them together so they become mutually reinforcing. And so in a way, that's what we're hoping to do here is we're all doing our independent things. We all have our projects, but what would happen if we start to work together for them to become mutually reinforcing, to coordinate in the kind of way that when things are really picked up in one place, they're supporting what's happening in another. So this is an emerging partnership that's forming right now. I think that's something that just sort of reinforces the need for people to work together to change the entire system, right? I was just in Pine Top last night and that's what everybody kept talking about, right? was, you know, childcare breeds this and it doesn't, you don't have adequate childcare, then what do you do with work opportunities? And so just supporting each other so that you can all have the best communities that, uh, that we can. In terms of your housing stuff that you were mentioning, the land trust, we might connect you to Gabriel Jaramillo on our team. He's our director of healthy communities and housing is his bread and butter. He's working a lot on schools and housing right now, but our Promising Practices publication, which is on our website, mentions a little bit about community land trusts and how that can be utilized and he might have some contacts for you. So Nice. Yeah, that's great. And what you're saying, being place-based, it helps to reconcile a lot of this because when we have single issue focuses, you start to work on one area without realizing that it's all interdependent of these other aspects that have this this effect on it. So you focus, like a classic example is people focus on, let's say like workforce development. But if you're not focused on childcare, if you're not focused on mental health and other social supports, then it's really hard to get something like that going. So it does take a comprehensive place-based approach to to make it happen. It doesn't mean people can't focus on areas, but if they can see how those areas that they're focused on are part of a larger comprehensive initiative to support a place, then I think really where we're going to see big differences come in the future. You've talked to us about Superior. You've talked to us about Regenerating Sonora. For those interested, August 26th is the Prickly Pear Festival. If you're in the Phoenix area, just drive out east, you'll hit Superior. <laughs> if you're coming up from eastern Arizona, you can go down through what the Salt River Canyons. It's definitely a way to get out there. So get out there and learn about what else there is across Arizona. And Superior is one of those places. So, you know, is there anything else we've missed that you might want to tell us about? Well, I'm just so inspired by the good work that is happening here. So, you know, when I say here, I mean the Copper Corridor at large, right? So we have a a very effective town manager and mayor. We have a good town council. We have uh, projects like the Superior Enterprise Center that's focused on bringing the jobs of the future here locally. And that those jobs of the future, a lot of them are the trades of the jobs of old that are going to be even more necessary as we move into the future. We have my arts commission, like I mentioned before, we also have some other nonprofits that that are forming, like Thea and Regina with the Love Where You Live out of Globe. I'm really excited about what they're going to be doing. And there's a, a residential care program called Set Free Kearney. And I remember when I was trying to find housing for a community member, we went through a big long list of all kinds of potential shelters and programs. And for one reason or another, none of them panned out. But And the only one that did was this one. And I think it's just worth mentioning that 
when people are in in dire straits and they really need some support and some more hands-on support that is that uh, there's organizations out there like Set Free Kearney that supports those kinds of things. So yeah, I'm just really inspired by all the people that are working on this because, you know, here you are hearing from me, but, you know, if you think about like the way that the that a mushroom works is like you see the mushroom it pulls out from the ground so you see you see that one mushroom but what you don't see underneath is this whole mycelium network that's underneath that that the little mushroom is just a fruit that you see but what's behind the scenes is all the inner workings that means all the people processes and ways that we work together to to support each other and so i'm happy that it, i get the honor and i appreciate the fact that you asked for me to come here because in a way i feel like i'm representing a whole mycelium network that's underground that that we're not seeing today. So I just appreciate the opportunity and I thank all my friends in the work here. Thanks, Chris. On today's episode, you were the voice of the Copper Corridor. Well, <laughs> as, yeah, as, as best as I can and certainly not as adequate as, as it deserves, but yeah, thank you. It's great that you highlighted other communities and the work that's being done there. So that's, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much.